Support for Talking Art on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Charlotte Blake Alston, an African-American storyteller who is spending two weeks in our community as a Quad City Arts visiting artist. You can hear her at a free public performance this Friday, February 23rd, at the Butterworth Center in Moline. She also has two free library performances on Thursday, February 22nd, in Leclerc and in Moline. In addition to being a master storyteller, she's also a narrator and librettist. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you. You are a busy woman. <laughs> I <laughs> am. You are. Describe for us what will happen at your upcoming performances this week. Well, um, I'm, I will be in the Quad Cities area for two weeks, actually. Um, and uh, it's a combination of school performances, uh, both uh, lower grades and uh, upper grades as well. And I have also some uh, master class, a master class with some uh, sixth grade students. I have a workshop with teachers. Um, uh, and uh, also a workshop with uh, some students who have varying levels of theater experience, so we'll have an interesting uh, session there. So it's a really combination of things uh, and a combination of venues uh, in the Quad Cities area. Yeah, one thing I really do love about the Quad City Arts (laughs) Visiting Artist Programs is that um, the people who come in, like yourself, uh, do just just dive into our community, and I so love the fact that um that people of of many different ages um, mm-hmm. can can hear you um i'm i'm just curious did your interest in storytelling begin when you were a child uh actually i i don't know if it was storytelling in particular but um spoken word um i grew up in a musical household that's the way i describe it my mother was uh the church organist she played pipe organ uh, play piano, and uh, she brought the piano teacher to our house. So when you, soon after you learned how to read, probably around six is when everybody started to take uh, piano lessons. Um, and uh, we would do family programs, you know, we would sing. Uh, in fact, a, f- a couple years ago, I was able to take my dad's old reel-to-reel tapes to a friend of mine who has a studio um, who said he was just about to throw that machine away, but he was able to pull things off of that reel, those reel-to-reels. And one of them was my siblings and I singing our sort of signature song when we were kids. Uh, but my father couldn't carry a tune from the living room to the dining room. But he had a passion for language and literature. And um, I was, you know, a big daddy's girl, so when he was in my parents' bedroom at night trying to get some quiet time away from a wife and five kids so he could write. I would go in there and just sit on the floor to be around him. And he just started reading out loud some of what he was reading, um, reading some of the works of African-American poets and writers, and then gave me the complete poems of African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar and selected a poem for me to read. And I read it over and over, and even as a six-year-old, um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote in several different poetic forms and structures, but he's most known for and remembered for the work he did in what's referred to as Negro or African-American dialect. So when I saw the 
it on the page, his choices of spellings for what was really a dialect passed down orally, I immediately heard the sound of the melody, the rhythm, uh, the articulation patterns of my great aunts and uncles, so it wasn't difficult for me to read. So I read it over and over, and I memorized this particular poem, and I think when he saw how quickly I memorized it, a little light bulb went on, and he started writing other monologues and giving me other passages of poetry to memorize, and I started standing in front of people when I was a child. So the the storytelling, though, came more formally, came a little later. I was a classroom teacher for a number of years, and, <clears throat> pardon me, was using storytelling um, along with many a myriad of things you hope teachers are using to bring history and literature alive and bring some energy into your classroom. And I did an assembly program once. I did a story, and everybody kind of went nuts. And I wondered what the big deal was, including for my kids, who were, I thought were always immersed in story. And I went to hear a storyteller, and just with his voice, he just transported us out of the space we were in. And I understood its power. Mm-hmm. And soon after that, I discovered there was a, a national community of people who uh, did this who um, did that, right? their life's work. And I got connected with that community. And that's, that's pretty much how it started for me. Right. That's that's lovely. You know, and you're right when you were describing this as starting um, as a as a child, really, with your father. Most most of us are read to from a very young age mm-hmm. as children. And, and listening is, is very important. It's the earliest way of being exposed to a story or tale or fable. Um, I'm assuming that storytelling was also perhaps the earliest form of passing on traditions and tales oh, as we developed as a human species. Was, uh, yeah, before there was any, you know written word before there were characters or letters to represent sounds or symbols to represent items or objects. The stories were told orally. The psalms Mm -hmm. were sung, you know, before they were written down. So, uh, you know, you can, some people, it's probably debatable, but I would suspect it's, it's, it is the, if not one of the oldest art forms in existence. And, you know, if you, for thousands of years, um, people have been telling stories for entertainment, but also as a way of of stimulating conversation about mm-hmm. making sense of the environment and the world around them. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah I, I'm, we're seeing that more. I, what, what do you think um, it is about modern communication and life that makes storytelling perhaps even more pertinent now? And I, I'm thinking about the huge popularity of podcasts and, you know, the emergence of programs like StoryCorps and right. that, that type of thing. I think there is a fundamental aspect of our humanity that craves a human connection. Mm-hmm. And being able to see yourself in someone else and, you know, nurture that built-in uh, empathy that we are born with that we don't always nurture in the culture. But I think there is a, a, just, a, just an internal desire for human-to-human connection. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in many ways, it's a modern way of sitting around the fire right. and sharing and, and taking turns telling stories or hearing those who emerged in different communities as the storytellers, mm-hmm. or, you know, the oral historians. You know, in West Africa, it was a way that, well, probably not just there. If you go back far enough in your own ethnic history, you'll find an oral tradition. So you'll find the Shaniki in Ireland. You'll find the, you know, Dastangoy of India, uh, the Bard of, Eng- of England, the Magid of Jewish tradition. If you go back far enough, you'll find an oral tradition. Um, and for many, it was the way in which their history and cultural beliefs shared cultural beliefs and traditions were passed on. So it was more formal in some places up until colonization, particularly in West Africa, but that that, um, tradition has been revived of 
the griot or the jali as the oral keeper of records, the oral historian who continues to pass on those stories. Yes. You know, it's funny. Uh, we previously in, um, interviewed Nate Lawrence, who runs a program here in the Quad Cities called Polyrhythms. And he was talking about the concept of a griot. And it's, you know, it's for the listeners, it's spelled G-R-I-O-T. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that until I was speaking with with uh, Nate. Oh, right. It goes back hundreds of years. Um, and there was, uh, you know, and people can kind of look that up. The former teacher in me comes out sometimes with kids. Uh, Ibn Battuta, who was an explorer who came upon um, the kingdom of Mali, um, you know, 800 years ago, and wrote about seeing these griots, seeing them play these 21-string instruments and recounting their history in, in spoken mm-hmm. word and song. So we know if, if, if they were playing it when he arrived 800 years ago, they were playing it before, <laughs> before right. he got there. Right. So, um, huh. you know, it's a long tradition. But, I, you know, I, there, there were times when I've traveled and, and encountered children who, you know, I was just really impressed with how much they knew about their history. I remember seeing once a panel discussion, um, and uh, Angelique Kijo, who is a Nigerian pop singer, uh, was on the panel, and the focus was education, which unfortunately often devolves into teacher bashing. But she says, uh, well, where are the parents? You have your children for five years before they go to school. She said, the first time I heard about slavery, my mother was singing it in a song. So they're hearing the songs and the stories from the time they're very young. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's, it's a tradition that was somewhat, you know, suppressed during colonization, but um, it, it's uh, made a resurgence. Well, that's, I think that's, you know, that's, that's really fortunate for us that, that, that it is um, resurging. And again, it's yeah. becoming more popular. Um, I had read, I think, on your website that there were there's certain countries within the African continent that have richer storytelling traditions, like, um, and they're mainly in Western, in Western Africa. Africa. Yeah, yeah, why do you think that is? Well, kind of, you know, according to one of my teachers uh, um, from he's from Mali, that the tradition dates back to Mali. Mali was a kingdom. Uh, which then uh, people migrated out of into other regions. When you know colonizers came in and cut, chopped up the, the geography, um, and um, you know renamed countries and that sort of thing. But it crosses ethnic lines. So if you go, in fact, if you look at a map um, of Senegal, you'll see in the middle of Senegal is a small country, the hmm. Gambia. So the French. <laughs> colonized Senegal, and they gave the British this strip of land in the middle of it. So to get from the northern part of Senegal to the southern part of Senegal without spending an entire day or two going around the Gambia, you actually go through the Gambia. So you go out of the country of Senegal, into the country of Gambia, back out of the country of Gambia, back into the southern portion of Senegal to get in. It's a little bizarre. But people migrated out from there, but they took the traditions with them into Senegal, Mm -hmm. into Gambia. Uh, into Guinea-Bissau, into Guinea. We will always probably deal with some of the negative repercussions of colonization, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. um, do you feel that storytelling helps us to become a more globally connected community? Um, I would say yes, um, because I, regardless of... It, it can. It can do that. Um, the, regardless of the ethnic or geographic origins of the story, all stories speak of our commonalities as human beings, mm-hmm. all of our struggles and challenges and fears and 
um, you know, the ways in which we overcome those and work through those kinds of things. So I always say that those stories, again, regardless of their geographic or ethnic origin, the human element in the story reach out and reaches out and connects with the human element in the listener. Oh, yeah. You also play some traditional African instruments during your performances. I'm not going to try to pronounce the names. I'm going to have you do that for oh. me. But I'm curious, how did you learn to play these? And, and will you use yeah. some of them during your public performances? And, and, and some of them don't slip around as much anymore as they get older. But um, <laughs> I, you know, as when I really connected with the national storytelling community and learned more about the West African oral tradition, certainly not something that I was ever taught in school. I mean, we were kind of given the opposite. Um, and I mean, and it, that still hap- that continues today where there's this perpetuation of uh, misinformation uh, uh, and, and mythology about the continent and its people. Um, you know, that they're, you're backward and uncivilized. And I have friends who, uh, are citizens, but they're from, you know, Uganda or, or Senegal or whatever, and they say they will go to schools and kids will ask them if they live in trees. So you, we still get those negative images, and most of the time when there's a focus on the continent, it's it's either animals or uh, particular locations where there is distress and war or starvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, though, I, in fact, I, lost, I just lost the, your question was, um, well, are you oh, going to be playing some of the instruments? The instruments. So as I started to do research um, and really began to uncover the, this rich oral tradition, I saw that particularly in, in Mali, uh, Gambia, Senegal, part of that tradition or significant part of that tradition included um, music and the the playing particularly of the kora, which is a 21-string instrument, which is plucked, the plucked instrument. Um, and so I, it, it's played as the history is recounted in a combination of spoken word and song. So it so intrigued my interest, and I happened to um, have the good fortune of traveling to Senegal for the first time in 1988, and I was chaperoning some students, and we were sitting at a restaurant, Senegal's Dakar is right by the water, by the ocean, and we were outside, and there was just lots of teenage chatter until this young man sat down, <laughs> picked up this incredible heavenly instrument and started plucking the strings and playing these heavenly sounds. And all of the teenage chatter went to silence. Yeah, I bet it stopped immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Music does that to us. Yeah, so that was my first real encounter with the instrument. And I ended up, I think the following day or a couple of days later, I went to a marketplace and I saw a small one that I purchased. But it was some years later that I... I, um, just decided I wanted to see if I could could study the instrument. And I had to ask, because it is generally played by men, if being female and being American would be an issue. And my first teacher, Jimo Kuyate, said, what matters is if you are serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so great. I spent three hours driving down to Washington, D.C. when I could, and three hours back. So I'll never master the instrument. They begin when they're five, six, or seven years old, you know, sitting in their dad's lap watching his fingers. The fathers will make a smaller instrument for them. Um, but um, just enough so that I can represent the instrument respectfully and represent the tradition respectfully. Right. That's, that's great. When, when you're doing your storytelling then, what, what are some of your favorite themes? I, I was curious, are they kind of old stories or fables that have been passed down over generations or centuries or some of the new creations? Yeah, most, most of them are traditional tales and, and certainly my adaptations of them. I mean, you can hear 
a storyteller tell a three or four storytellers tell the same story they're going to tell it in three or four different ways mm-hmm. but um for the most part my repertoire contains traditional stories that have been passed down um some of them um you know i found in anthologies uh but they've you know been translated out of their language and they're out of their cultural context so often i would contact somebody uh, who um was from the country of 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 origin of that story to get some context from them mm-hmm. um, uh, before I would tell that story. And then, you know, it's, sometimes you read a story and it just feels like something's missing um, or something just doesn't quite make sense. Uh, and then I can have someone who can fill that, in, that information in for me um, so that I can tell the story with uh, some degree of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, but so most of them are traditional. I mean, I do have uh, some stories that I've written on my own or some, uh, especially for young children, some wacky adaptations of some fairy tales. <laughs> Uh, but uh, most of them, yes, are traditional stories. Uh-huh. Great. I saw also on your website, which is www.charlotteblakealston.com, there were um, there were links to three shorter five-minute stories. So mm-hmm. for the listener, that would be a good way to yes. to um, to hear a little bit. Um, besides storytelling, really, you, you know, you're a very versatile artist. You've also worked with a variety of orchestras, musical mm-hmm. ensembles, and choirs around the country. Yes. Yes, I have. That's been really wonderful. I, you just never know what, what will happen when you make the choice to follow your heart. <laughs> so I stepped away from uh, teaching, as a friend, as an uh, elder friend of mine put it. You're going to leave that good job with those good benefits? Um, but I, I stepped away um, to pursue kind of the leadings of my heart, and doors opened. So yeah, a lot of what I'm doing now I would never have expected but to do. But yes, um, I have been uh, commissioned to craft uh, some narrative text for existing orchestral works, for example. Um, some, I, I host concerts as well. So I've been working with the Philadelphia Orchestra, actually, for about 27 years. I, I saw host, that since 1991. You were the yeah, first host, storyteller right, to perform with right, them. Yeah. So I host um, their preschool series, which is called Sound All Around, and this is season 24 for that. I'm the only host they've had so far. I keep letting them know I don't have another 24 years where you have to have a conversation. But um, but that also led to um, a number of years of work uh, at Carnegie Hall for the Carnegie Hall Family Series and just similar, um, both hosting, narrating, um, sometimes uh, little mini commissions to craft text for existing work, uh, craft uh, text, te- concert text for the program, the narrative mm-hmm. text for the program. Um, choirs, uh, there's, uh, we have the um, Commonwealth Youth Choirs here in Philadelphia, based in Philadelphia, which consists of the Pennsylvania Boy Choir, Pennsylvania Girl Choir, and uh, the um, Commonwealth, I think it's the Boy, the, they have a Girl Choir and a Boy Choir. I'm, I'm fumbling over their names. But uh, yes, I've had a couple of commissions for them. Um, and uh, uh, probably the, the biggest one was um, 2013 for Singing City Choir, which is, uh, they claim to be, and I believe they are, the oldest integrated choir in the country. Uh, they were formed in 1948. Um, and uh, 2013 was uh, the 50th observance of the Children's March in Birmingham, Alabama. Hmm. Uh, the Philadelphia International Festival of the Arts, PIFA Festival, had a theme of time and place, uh, and the choir submitted a proposal um, to focus on this particular event, a pivotal event in American civil rights history. And what did so you I, do with that? I crafted the uh, entire libretto for it, wow. and uh, the composer said it. That's music. amazing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made a good decision to step away from teaching. <laughs> I think 
think so. I, you know, I gave myself two years, and I prayed there'd be a net if I fell. So that was it. Sounds like there was. You were caught. Yeah, <laughs> the net turned into a catapult. I read that you were the fe- a featured artist at the presidential <laughs> inaugural festivities in Washington D.C. What was uh, that like? Yeah, among many, mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, that was uh, Clinton. Uh, Clinton's inaugural. So they had artists everywhere. They had performances everywhere in different venues at the Smithsonian Institution, at the uh, the Kennedy Center of the Performing Arts. So uh, I did have, uh, I think uh, Eunice Kennedy, I think, bought out one of the houses um, at the museum. Uh, I think I was, I can't remember now, I think it was arts and industries. They have a small theater in there. But it was basically you would do a certain number, uh, uh, maybe 30 minutes, and then that audience would rotate out, another audience would come in, and you do a 30-minute set for that audience. So, wow. Well, that um, sounds so, amazing. Yeah. And, and your performances have have also um, ranged tremendously from something very elegant like that, um, performing, say, at the JFK Center for the Performing Arts here in the U.S., but also to places such as refugee camps in Senegal. Um, yeah, that was kind of an impromptu session. Um uh, again, it was during a year when I was chaperoning students, and it was not actually on our itinerary. Um, but there had been some tension uh, in uh, Senegal's neighbor country, Mauritania. Um, with some, we don't have time for all the political issues there, but um, uh, hundreds of people fled across the border into Senegal. And there were just you know, hundreds of people in this, this camp and hundreds of children a lot of them separated from parents. So the person who had organized our itinerary for us, since we were in the area, thought it might be a good experience for our students to go in. And we took um, toys. We had soccer balls, um, you know, Nerf Frisbees and footballs and wiffle balls and bats and that sort of thing and bags of candy. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, we went in. Um, we went as far as the van could take us, and, and we got off the van, and we were walking, and, I, I, I was actually thinking this was going to be a low point um, on, on an otherwise really quite extraordinary tour. And, uh, you know, the, the dust was rising from the road, and we heard singing. And we looked up, and, and children had come from the camp to meet us, to greet us. They were singing, and they took our hands and took us back. And, and people were being housed, actually, at that point in grain warehouses and uh, these, there were just hundreds of children. They took us behind one of these grain warehouses, and these children were on the ground. And someone came up, and uh, with the help of our translator, said, "Oh, uh, you are their guest. They want to give you a gift. They want to give you a piece of theater." So the kids had prepared a skit for us. Uh-huh. So you know, I thought we we thought that you know, in that moment, in our Western way of thinking, you know, these children had nothing. We came to bring them something. They gave us. The greatest gift anyone could give, and that was themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I felt like I, we couldn't just drop our stuff and, and run and leave. So you did so an impromptu performance. As I well. did, yes. <laughs> Perfect. With my translator. Perfect. And yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you have had such a wealth of experiences, and we feel extremely fortunate that you are with our community for two weeks, February twelfth through twenty third. Um, Charlotte Blake Alston. Uh, Thank you so much for talking today. Um, My pleasure. It's, Thanks for inviting yeah, me. Uh, we are excited to uh, see you. And again, your your public performance is scheduled for this Friday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Butterworth Center on Moline. But there are also two free library performances the day before 
on Thursday, February 22nd, in Le- and in LeClaire, and also in Moline. Mm-hmm. So bring everybody. Bring the kids. Bring Grandma. Bring everyone. Well, I hope you get a great turnout there, <laughs> and thank you so much for talking today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.